The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Girls, Girls, Burgers edition. It's Wednesday, December 5th, 2018. On today's show, Support the Girls is a miniature mumblecore portrait of a day in the life of a Hooters-style restaurant or restaurant, if you will. That is not my locution. And then Little Drummer Girl is the latest sumptuous, sinuous, sleek, sophisticated adaptation of a John le Carre novel to the small screen. This one stars Michael Shannon. Ah, the marvelous Michael Shannon is an Israeli intelligence officer on the heels of a terrorist cell responsible for a gruesome bombing. And finally, can a good review kill a restaurant? We discuss. Uh, joining me today is uh, the deputy editor of the LA Times, I think. That's your title, Julia Turner? You'll get it, Steve. It's deputy <laughs> managing editor for arts and entertainment. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Oh, my God. Come up with a snappy acronym and then I'll, then I'll have it. Um, and of course, Slate's... Uh, I think critic. the acronym is Demaya. <laughs> <laughs> the vowel no, no, acronym. No, no, it's Demaya. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So oh, now it's done. It's finished. Woo. Woo. Okay. And uh, uh, Slate's film critic remains Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey there. Support the Girls is a day in the life dramedy from writer-director Andrew Bajalski. It stars Regina Hall as Lisa, the general manager of a Hooters-like establishment called Double Whammies, the kind of joint that squeezes its every female employee into short shorts and halter tops. Nothing or very little out of the ordinary happens in the course of Lisa's day, except kind of everything. She tries to force respect into every one of her uh, encounters one at a time, but along the way must deal with a volatile boss, horny patrons, fraternizing employees, and the ill effects of huge steens of weak piss yellow beer. Oh, my dear. Um, I'm not making this movie sound good. I think it's terrific. It's In addition to Regina Hall, it stars Haley Lou Richardson and Shana McHale and various other people in a wonderful ensemble cast. Let's listen to a clip. You know, let me just say this. Uh, we have a zero tolerance policy on it. You know, I don't mind calling the cops if customers commit the crime of sexual mm-hmm. assault. And trust me, I don't have to call far because you know what? We have a lot of officers who are regulars. And Officer Dominguez is a cutie, I think. Uh, But seriously, y'all, let me just say, the most important thing is that this is a mainstream place, you know, and it's a family place, which means a lot of families come here, and it also means that we're all family. And yeah, you're not, you know, you're not wearing a a whole lot of clothes, but trust me, if these guys wanted to go to a strip club, they know where to find them. They just come here so some sweet girls can take good care of them. It's like like working at at Chili's or Applebee's, except it's more fun and the tips are way better. (laughs) Uh, Dana, I kind of rattled my way through the intro super quickly because I don't think anything you could say by way of mere summary can make this movie sound anything other than maybe mediocre or maybe, you know, just sort of dismissible or slight. Um, But I thought it was a wonderful movie. It's just going to have to, we're going to have to convey it through other kinds of description. Anyway, what do you think of it? I absolutely loved it. I'm so glad we're talking about it. And I'm really happy to have discovered it so late in the year. I mean, this movie was released to no fanfare whatsoever. It started streaming way back in 
late summer, I think, and uh, and has just been kind of sitting there streaming on various platforms for all these months and not really being talked about. It suddenly emerged into my life late in the year because the New York Film Critics Circle was about to meet for our annual awards voting, and Regina Hall's name was being circulated as Best Actress. And I was saying, wait, Andrew, Andrew Bajelski movie that I missed, this actress who I, I'm not familiar with, and uh, and I'm so happy to have discovered it because we gave her the award. <laughs> we I ended up watching it in part of the you know the cramming leading up to the voting, and we ended up giving her the uh, the Best Actress Award, which I think was sort of an out of left field choice for this early in award season for a small movie like this to um to be recognized. And I'm really glad it was because I hope it will bring more people to the movie. I do have one objection to a word that you used in your setup. Uh-oh. And it's a word beginning with M that I swore years ago in a review, I think, of an Andrew Pajalski movie never again to use in the pages of Slate. So I won't say it on a podcast either. Mumblecore. I mean, I, the truth is I read that he is thought of as a mumblecore director. I, the movie doesn't strike me as especially mumblecore-y. But even so, it's, I agree it's a sort of stupid designation. I just used it for shorthand. Yeah, I mean, I think people keep on using it for shorthand in that way. And I guess I'm kind of trying to do this director a solid because way back in the early 2000s when he emerged as, I think, from the beginning, a very interesting directing talent and maybe the most talented of this group that was designated with that word, which would include Joe Swanberg and Lynn Shelton and the Duplass brothers sort of fall into that basket, too. I think Andrew Bajalski is the most kind of cinematically gifted of, of that bunch and has made the best lineup of movies so far. And this is really moving pretty far afield from what was always designated by that term, which tended to be, I mean, first of all, obviously, it's a somewhat dismissive designation, but it always seemed to point toward uh, A, movies in which not much happens, which I don't think you could really say about this movie. The things that happen are everyday things. You know, they're not sort of the crime or, you know, high caper hijinks of Hollywood movies, but a lot of important things happen to Regina Hall's character over the course of the one day where this movie takes place. And and it's also, unlike most of the movies desi- designated as mumblecore, is not about white upper middle class, you know, sort of mm-hmm. slackers moaning around, which was always the way that those movies were so quickly dismissed. On the contrary, this is a really diverse racially and economically diverse cast. It's also a geographically diverse movie in that it takes place in the suburbs of Houston, which is not a place you see often on film and which I think is really well captured as a milieu. So anyway, I'm trying to, to do Andrew Pajelski a favor and take him off that list and say, OK, now you get to be just a director. Mm-hmm. Uh, Julia, it struck me that this movie was uh, kind of a parable of a, about a black woman holding up the universe or holding the universe together while a white guy walks away with the profits. You don't think of this as a pointedly or, or ostentatiously political movie, but it sort of is one. I thought it was a very political movie. I mean, I think, you know, you and I both thought of Magic Mike as like actually a very complex economic document rather than, uh, uh, you know, get get loaded and go woo strip movie. And I think um, similarly, this other story about working class people in the warmer southerner part of the country, uh, having kind of minimum wage jobs that require them to deploy their hotness and their body parts strategically, um, seems like a similar economic portrait of what what work is and means to people. First of all, Dana, I just want to interrupt myself to thank you and the New York Film Critics Circle for giving Regina Hall the Best Actress Award. I saw this movie go by. I saw the great reviews it got. I thought, oh man, I should see that. And then I never quite got around to it. And what an excellent movie. But I think, you know, Regina Hall's character is exploring what work 
means to working class women um, and how work operates for working class women in this way that provides a nice compliment to Magic Mike. And one recurring theme that I thought was really interesting is the way in which is your workplace your family. You know, she says, even in that clip we heard, this is really a family place and we're family. And of course, your colleagues are your family and that they're the set of people you spend a ton of time with that you didn't necessarily choose. And then they're also not your family because uh, capitalism. So uh, the a woman trying to figure out who she is and how she um, should be and from what set of things that she does, she derives her own identity in that context, I thought was just fascinating and excellent and wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I just have to come in with a like hard third here, thirded. Uh, I really, 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 really hope our listeners take to heart our enthusiasm for this movie that may be falling a little bit through the cracks, though the award, uh, Dana, is really going to help because it's it is a fantastic piece of filmmaking on the part of the writer-director, but the performance of uh, Regina Hall is... uh, it 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 floors you right it's like um so one thing at a time first julia like this is absolutely i totally agree in my notes i wrote distaff magic mike um you know it's it's about people trying not just to survive but make themselves human within a semi-human or dehumanizing landscape the core of the movie is a director really understanding his actress and what she can carry and convey which is a lot he basically handed this movie over to her, her face her voice her body language and she delivered a marvelous portrait and a marvelous movie Uh, back to her director. There's a moment of amazing poetry to me when she gets off the phone in this very nondescript alleyway and she's under a lot of pressure at that moment and she has a moment with a crow that lands next to her. And it was just unclear whether this was a moment of pure cinematic fortuity or whether they had like a little, you know, animatronic crow land there. But it's just, she just, she expresses so much in that moment. She just has this, 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 you know, she communes with this creature for one second and tells you everything you need to know about um, about the pressure that she's under. I love how how completely unglamorous it is that this is not, by the way, a, a weirdly important fact of the movie is that this is not a Hooters-like franchise. A very important fact of the movie is that it's a one-off. Double Whammies is just one restaurant with this hook. They're not a franchise. They're not corporatized. And it's very much about what running an unglamorous small business is like, which increasingly is the role of uh, black women uh, or a portion of black women in the American economy to make a movie about that was uh, wonderful. And then she has a line that I just can't help repeating because it's amazing. She says, sad dudes is my business. I'm not afraid of sad. And it's just man, whole worlds come at you through little lines and little moments. And I think the one or two critics who I won't call out for this, many have like Dana recognized it's a terrific movie. Those that find it slight are so meaning blind that uh, I feel sorry for them. This is a terrific movie. And I really hope everyone who listens to this show seeks it out. Yeah, I think that's something that's maybe even not clear from even the praise we've heaped on it so far is that this doesn't feel like a social issue picture or like a problem picture or something mm-hmm. like that. It really is a comedy. It's a very, you know, humane comedy with a lot of social scope to um, to the things that it's asking us to look at. But but it also makes you laugh a lot. And uh, and it also doesn't 
paint anyone with a broad brush, except possibly the owner of the restaurant who's so despicable that he never gets a, a single redeeming moment. But almost every other character, including a lot of the dudes that come into double whammies to goggle at the waitresses in their skimpy shorts, are not painted with the brush of simple, you know, these are sexual harasser, you know, Me Too villains who need to be fought against. There's a little bit of a sense, as you say, of, of the sadness of the customers and of the waitress's real connections with some of them. I really appreciated that nobody in this movie is painted as all one thing or all another. And the girls as well, the um, the, the waitresses at Double Whammies are all very differentiated. And I would just also remark that there's at least one great supporting performance that could equally well have been, I think, awarded something, which was uh, Haley Lou Richardson as Macy, one of the, um, not strippers, but double whammy waitresses in in skimpy costumes. Um, She's sort of a dumb blonde, but a dumb blonde who has so much heart and smarts in her way and sweetness that she she really shines. And I, I wanted to shout her out because I remember her talking about her as well last year in Columbus, that really unusual and excellent movie about modernist architecture where she played a kind of cerebral architecture nerd. So she's now played two wildly different characters in two very good small movies, both of which I recommend. Oof, I've been meaning to see Columbus. I was out that week uh, ever since because... Of course, I want to see an architecture movie. And uh, Oh, Columbus was one of the best movies of 2017. I don't think either of you guys were here. I think that was a me with two other people week when we discussed Columbus, and I think you would both adore it. One thing, just responding to your observation about the moment with the crow, Steve, although I think that might have been a boat-tailed grackle, actually, but um, I... <laughs> actually. <laughs> I'm actually not sure. Actually, actually. So I, I'm ready for the avian experts of Texas to to come on in and tell me I'm wrong. But the thing I loved about it was that there's an earlier moment where in an effort to finagle a stereo loan from the stereo store that's down the same strip for reasons I won't get into uh, having to do with the plot, um, one of the waitresses sits for a AV demonstration in this kind of sad little room full of luxury leather recliners and a big ass screen and a bunch of speakers. And the thing that they show there in a windowless white room full of expensive technology is nature. And the notion is that like, if you are rich and can afford a sweet stereo hookup, then you can appreciate the burbling sounds of the brook and the cause of the crows slash grackles. Um, And there was a way in which I almost felt like her funny encounter with the AV tech was what prompted her to spend a moment with the grackle. And even that notion of um, the degree to which being present in nature is a luxury object. Uh, Uh I just love the way the film, uh, there's no wasted movement in the film. It's also 90 minutes has a great ending. It's a delight to watch. It's on Amazon streaming. Like watch this movie, watch this movie. Yeah, what's not yeah. to love? I completely feel that way. This one may be worming its way onto my top 10 list as it begins to form because it's one of those late-year discoveries that you're just so glad you didn't miss. And she deserves a, a Best Actress nomination for this easily. I really hope she gets it. It's such a small movie, she might not. Um, but uh, anyway, support the girls. As Julia says, it's on Amazon. We really hope everyone who listens to this show watches this movie and then at us on Twitter. All right, uh, moving on. Dana, before we go any further, we have uh, business, no doubt. What, what do you have? 
Yes, we do, Steve. The first and most important order of business is that our annual call-in show is just around the corner a few weeks away. This is something we do every year around holiday time when we might not be able to come together on the holiday week itself. We pre-record a show based on your questions for us about whatever weird and wonderful things you want to ask us about. So if you have a question that's somehow vaguely related to culture that you'd like us to talk about on our call-in show, you can call 323-628-1889, leave us a voicemail, and we will possibly play your voicemail and answer it on the show. Again, that's 323-628-1889. Also, in Slate Plus today, we are going to be talking about a big package that ran in Slate last week about family games. This is also sort of holiday-related, now that I think about it. Slate's own Dan Coyce had the idea of putting this together, and it's kind of a combination of reviews of games, lists of the best family games, defenses of games like Monopoly that are much maligned. And uh, so we're going to take advantage of that to just talk about the experience of board games and uh, which ones we love, which ones we hate, how we feel about them. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, you can sign up for Slate Plus, the magazine's membership program, which is a great way to support us and the journalism we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and all your other favorite Slate shows. And in return, you will get extended ad-free versions of those shows and many other great benefits. So if you would like to support the Culture Gab Fest, you can go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, Stephen, onward. All right. The Little Drummer Girl is the latest adaptation of a John le Carre novel for the small screen. You might recall... In the late 70s and early 80s, the BBC did groundbreaking adaptations of Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, and Smiley's People with Alec Guinness. Those were amazing. They were cornerstones of my like TV consciousness back in the day. Anyway, this one begins with a brutal terrorist bombing in 1979 in Bonn, Germany. Uh, this leads to the assembly of a Mossad team of uh, super agents led by Martin, played by Michael Shannon, uh, whose remit is to infiltrate the terror network, destroy the cell, and achieve justice. Uh, a very important... I, I hardly know how to describe this without giving shit away, like important shit away, for which I will get so much grief on social media. So I'm skimping a little bit on my intro, but suffice it to say that a young woman named Charlie Ross, played by Florence Pugh, is uh, extremely important to the plot, uh, which I hope not to spoil in what follows. But let's listen to a clip. But then... Milan. And Zurich. And now... This. Yes. You know the Arabic driver of the inner shoe. This was the youngest brother. Oh. Mm -hmm. Khalil's cells are discreet, impenetrable, and his people never take the same route twice. But with your help, who knows what is possible? Because you see, Paul, sooner or later, a man will sign his name. Julia, I'm going to start with you. I have to tell you, it's it's Pavlovian or or maybe like neo-Darwinian or or something, but it is just in the deep code of Stephen Metcalf to respond to screen adaptations of John le Carre novels. I, I therefore have absolutely no powers of disinterested judgment when it comes to this product. I, I, I loved it, but would love it no matter what. So I have to completely just roll the ball over to you, you in order to get something like um, perspective on it. 
Okay, I'll shoot for perspective here. I mean, I will say that I, despite really loving spy books, thriller books, and mystery books, have never fallen in love with Le Carre. I know, it's sacrilege. Oh, no. Um, no. As a reader, and have basically liked but not been, you know, over the moon for any of the adaptations we've seen and discussed on this show, at least. Um, and this one is not... Uh, it's not your better basic Le Carre, in part because of its distinctive visual style, which I'm hoping that Dana will talk about. But this thing is gorgeous. It is like the best possible Instagram filter brought to life and made into an entire engrossing, but still only six episodes, so not going to take up your whole life, um, spy show that is pretty goofaroo in terms of its plotting, but um, the performances, and particularly the performance of Florence Pugh at the center of it, are delightful. Just what a gorgeous object to behold, you know, in this moment of peak TV where everything looks pretty good. Uh, I really liked looking at this thing. It has kind of the it has very saturated colors, but also they look kind of faded and dusty as though um, they looked at a bunch of old snapshots of the 70s and got those rich reds and yellows. And as Willa Paskin noted in her review, mustard has never looked so glamorous. Um, so the, the color style and the mood period stuff is almost the most cohesive fantasy of the past since Mad Men, I think. And then mm. plus spies. So what's not to love? Uh, yeah, agree with all of that. Good. Um, I feel ratified. I feel heard. I feel seen. Dana, I, I note that the director of all episodes is um, Park Chan-wook, and I cannot tell you who that is and why I should know his work, um, but fill us in. I don't know if you know his work or not. He's a South Korean director who's also started to make some movies in the Hollywood zone as well. Um, he was known at first for making kind of hyper-violent vengeance thrillers. So he has a movie called Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. He has another called Old Boy, in which famously the hero eats a live octopus in order to <laughs> demonstrate his toughness. Uh, he made, I believe it was last year or the year before, he made The Handmaiden, which was also extremely violent, but you know one of the best regarded movies of that year. And on the Western market, he's also made, well, his most, his most recent one there was a movie called Stoker, which came out a few years ago starring Mia Wasikowska. Anyway, he is a guy who's, whose thing is kind of sensation <laughs> and art direction, both of which this series delivers in spades, but I'm going to play the role that Julia wouldn't play and say that I actively disliked this show. Oh. I really feel no desire oh. to watch it until the end. I found the art direction, although beautifully done, to be kind of suffocatingly stiff and also just that the, this whole color theory that it was about seemed kind of painfully obvious. Um, and its basic premise, which is that, which is a great one, I suppose that this must also be, Steve, the, the, the theme of the novel, is that an actress... A young actress is, is conscripted to sort of turn herself into a fake terrorist so she can infiltrate this terror network, right? It's a great idea that opens up all these questions about what performance is, what acting is, what, you know, political belief is and how it differs from, you know, the impersonation of having a political belief. And all of that also fits really well into this 70s atmosphere of, of moody underground networks and mysterious terror cells. And yet I found that this show had almost no forward narrative propulsion. There's something that's almost deliberately static about it. Like it's all about um, it looks like a perfume commercial or something. It's all about these attractive people, <laughs> including Florence Pugh and, and Alexander Skarsgård, who plays her main contact, you know, the one who sort of brings her into this terror network, essentially by kidnapping her. 
And everybody's always posing against, you know, the background of the, the Acropolis wearing primary colored gowns. And there's just something about it that's completely artificial, such that I just I couldn't get into the plain old gritty suspense of it. Like, who's going to die? Who's going to live? Who believes what? Who cares about whom? Didn't either of you find that the the human drama and something to kind of actually dig your nails into and hang on to was sort of missing in this slick, perfect I, surface? I mean, no, because I mean, I'll tell you why. I'll give you a two word answer why Michael Shannon. I mean, I think she's amazing. And I think her story is in some ways more central to the whole thing. I mean, she's the I assume the title character and and her story feels to me after two hours watching two hours of it more central to the story uh, and I'm mesmerized by her in part because she's very beautiful but also you know her relationship to her own ability to perform is well thought out by both John le Carre and the character so I find her intrinsically interesting I think the relationship with Skarsgård is terrifically well illustrated its minimalism is integral to the plot but the counterweight, I think, to all of what you've uh, pointed to is is definitely Michael Shannon and his performance. It took me a little while to get used to him as an, as an Israeli doing an accent, kind of doing a little bit of a, you know, character turn. I mean, he's always a character actor, I suppose, but I mean, doing a, you know, an accent. He seems older, maybe uh, the character appears to me to be slightly older than what he typically plays. And maybe he is as an actor. I mean, he's really acting in this, but he's just such a magnetic performer and a, a, a source of of um, of um, internalized but strategically leaking force um, which is uh, you know really effective in this part that uh, I, I between the two of them I can't I can't not watch both of these characters play out their respective stories I'm in it to win it to the end to the last minute to the closing credits Julia okay I will Dana you you You've tugged at a um, a loose thread in my mind, and I, I think you may have gained a little purchase. So, Ha-ha. yes, yes, yes. There are some aspects of it that are emotionally inert, I think. I basically was willing to forgive it. Like, I don't think it is the next Mad Men. I do not think it is, like, the second coming of the TV show that we should all watch and talk about because it is about such fascinating fundamental human truths. I think it probably is a little bit stylish and empty with some good performances. Um, in part because I do I think that Florence Pugh outmatches almost everyone else in the show. Um, particularly Sarsgaard, who I mean, first of all, I mean I don't really know anything about Alexander Sarsgaard's religion or uh, you know, full background or whatever, but like Israeli Adonis is not the thing he is mostly known for. And there's like plenty of Israeli Adonises mm-hmm. you could cast to be the Israeli Adonis. Like it's a little wacko. Um, and I don't know. I just, I, I, I think you're right. You're, you are being the appropriately ambitious critic who can see what the show should have been about. And given the strength of Pew's performance, maybe if it had actually been about all of those things and had all of its mechanisms functioning, it would be, um, throw throw down your throw down all of your obligations and just sit down and watch the whole thing. I do not feel that way about it. I'm not even sure I'm going to finish it. I just thought like, woof, this is beautiful. She's great. Can't wait to see what she does next. Gosh, this looks gorgeous. That's that was basically mm. my whole response. What a pleasant way to pass my time. 
I, and I think my my com- total commitment to it is is other than the two performances is that I just love Lacare and I love watching him ad- ad- adapted Gary Oldman as Smiley Alec Guinness you know iconically as Smiley the night manager uh, pfft, just I just I just I, I I'll I'll kind of follow it anywhere but I can't tell you that that's a critical judgment it's just a highly personal one but it's beautiful to look at. Steve, a bit of a tidbit about the Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy movie that you're referencing, the one with Gary Oldman as as Smiley. That was actually initially intended to be directed by Park Chan-wook. He was connected to it at one point, and he ended up not doing it for reasons I'm not sure of. And it went to Thomas Alfredson, who I know you love because he did the Swedish Let the Right One In. Right. But wouldn't you agree? I mean, you seem to be casting this hugely wide net where it is literally impossible for anyone to adopt Lacare badly for you. But wouldn't you agree that Thomas Alfredson's film is a, is a greater achievement as an adaptation than this oh, series yeah, so yeah, far? Yeah. No, 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 no. Of course. Totally different. And it, it yeah, I'm not I, I look, I think for people who like those other movies, they are going to really like this, whether it stacks up to them. No, of course not. I mean, in the Alec Guinness in some ways was, you know, Smiley from 1979 is like pre-peak TV, peak TV. It's like laying the foundation for the idea that you can do long form novelistic storytelling on TV in a way that you can't in the movie theater using, you know, like the best, best uh, talent. To, to tell the story. I mean, it was peak TV before peak TV. So, I mean, it's like, is it doesn't, it's not up to that standard, but it's, it really is going to satisfy people for, I think, for whom, you know, like, you know, who like the night manager. Is that what it's called? The night manager? The one with Hiddleston? I wasn't here when you guys did that one, but they yes, called that. It is. I'm confused in my mind because my husband and I refer to that exclusively as the night manger for reasons lost to time and comedy but yes it's the night manager what's the name of the amazing maurice sundak book the night dana dana oh oh the night kitchen in the night kitchen in the night kitchen right in the night kitchen oh my god okay now we're free associating all right it's called uh the little drummer girl it's an adaptation of a john lacare novel it has lots of great people in it and we sort of on the fence on this one so it'd be Interesting to hear whether uh, you's all out there liked it. All right, moving on. The paradox of the internet is that it proliferates information to the point we know nothing about anything. Uh, as one small pushback, the writer Kevin Alexander decided to put rubber on road, boots on ground, chompers on flesh, and go and find the best burger in America. After sampling more, they look a pretty innocent exercise, right? Well, maybe not. After sampling more than 300 uh, restos, he declared Staniches, I think is how you pronounce it, S-T-A-N-I-C-H-S, uh, in Portland, Oregon, the winner. Um, the owner cried tears of joy on hearing the news in a video that went viral. But within a short period of time, uh, it, it tur- the whole thing curdled, turned into a t- kind of total nightmare. He was besieged by hour-long wait li- hours-long wait lines uh, and was so overrun, so overwhelmed, he eventually closed the joint indefinitely. Um <clears throat> Julia, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot to you right away on this one. Um, this is a story about a lot of things at once: about bricks and mortar versus virality. It's about authenticity fetishism, uh, you know, uh, destination dining, but also weirdly, it's about kind of killing the thing that you love. I mean, this story it goes in another direction involving domestic violence that, of course, we have to get to. But in Kevin Alexander's recent piece detailing what it was like to write a good review of something that killed it. Um, there's just an, <clears throat> there's just a remarkable amount of poignancy, um, kind of horrible ambivalence to the story that I'd love 
for you to help me puzzle out. This is such an interesting story and such an interesting topic. And I will fill out quickly just the second half of it. Um, So Kevin Alexander named this the best burger. Then he wrote back and wrote this mea culpa about did his anointing of this restaurant kill it. And then subsequent to that, Willamette Week reported that in fact, that some of the personal troubles to which Alexander had alluded in his follow-up piece were in fact stemming from the fact that um, uh, the owner of Stanich's had been arrested for choking his wife and um, that it was in the process of a complicated breakup with her. And so then the internet descended upon uh, the guy who killed the restaurant purportedly for also treating a potential domestic violence charge and incident as like a personal trouble that anyone could have dealt with. Um, and not really the center of the story. And so, uh, you know, what initially became a story of what happens when a from nowhere national digital media descends upon a somewhere and anoints it and sends the digital hordes uh, its way, then also became a story of what also happens when that same digital reporter from nowhere um, decides to leave some things out of the story that might also be pertinent in an effort to make a second story that makes a splash online of how you misjudged the locality. So there is really a complicated set of issues here around how journalism relates to place in the age of the internet. Um, And I think a few of the threads that might be worth chasing are, one, the initial question raised by the first follow-up piece, which is a good one, which is, by anointing something you love, can you crush it? Uh, then two, what are the responsibilities of, um, you know, national digital placeless outlets to the places they cover? Um, was it a dereliction of the food reporter to not have done, as, as one of the pieces we read noted about it, um, to have done like a public records report on, you know, when you're, when you're naming best restaurants, do you do a full background check on the operators and owners of every restaurant? Like, mm, probably not, actually. I, I don't think it's journalistic malpractice not to do that. There is some indication that he knew about the charge and left it out rather than that he failed to find the charge. And that, I think, is a slightly different question. Um, so let's take the first one first and just talk about the the baseline question of um, the critical obligation to not crush the thing you love. I mean, I will say that before the, the second set of questions came out, there was just an array of takes about, oh, this is so interesting. And oh, gosh, you can't ruin things. And I was just like, these are all businesses looking for customers. Like, it seemed a little bit clueless and precious for all these people to wring their hands about, oh, what a terrible thing you do when you point the attention of a, of a bunch of potential customers to a business and say, this business is good and you should be a patron of it. Like, yes, obviously, sometimes there are unintended consequences, but um, that, you know, I think there are a lot of business owners who would be delighted for someone to say, this is a good business. Obviously, the questions about how becoming a bigger business can change the character of an institution or a place are part of what um, the, the second piece tries to get at. And in the second piece, um, the critic very interestingly acknowledges that part of why I picked sandwiches is that it was a good story, um, you know, that it wasn't some hotshot chef who'd already been anointed by the James Beard Foundation, you know, that it was kind of like just a low-key, quote-unquote, authentic 
uh, burger joint. You know, that had been that, in business did, since 1949, right? Or something, a really old place. Right. And the part of what he, part of what made him pick it as the top pick was the fact that it was slightly unlikely um, and just a, a kind of diamond in the rough find, which is a good editorial narrative, um, but then caused the place to have so much business it couldn't necessarily keep up. Yeah. I mean, Julia, just going to that basic question of who who wouldn't want the business funneled to them that, you know, being on the top of the best burgers in America list would funnel to you. I think one of the food critics that Kevin Alexander talks to in that second piece makes an important point that, you know, if you really are going to be talking about a local regional business that isn't used to that kind of influx of out-of-towners, that at least you have the duty to warn them, you know, that, that, that there should be some sort of back and forth between the critic and the establishment about the fact that this may change the nature and the volume of your business going forward. Yeah, and also, I mean, you know, there, there are like there are a lot of different definitions of success, right? It's not simply a binary. Like if you know you're not flooded, if you don't, if you don't get some national press and aren't flooded with non-locals, you're going to fail. I mean, there are a lot of thriving. I mean, so a lot of the bit like here's my, where my skin enters this game is that we endorse every week, and I relentlessly you know, to the point of, you know, boorishness go on about relatively mom and pop uh, outfits in my neck of the woods. And it, it just, you know, and it, it's like they're all two hours, they're, they're all within two hours of New York City in an area which now for 20 years at least has been bringing, you know, New Yorker weekenders, rich weekenders and, you know, uh, summer vacationers up. And they, and a lot of them do teeter on the edge of, of, of um, making it or not making it. And so far as I know, like we, the, like the biggest one is the pie stand. Like I, there's no doubt in my mind that, I mean, there, there, there are tons of cars, like in season, tons of cars there and a lot of people going. And I'm positive that was not true prior to us making it go kind of mini viral at least for the Hudson Valley. But I think that there is, there's, there's definitely, it is not, not a real issue that a business of a certain scale suddenly gets introduced to a mega audience via the internet and they are not scaled for it. They can't scale up. They're designed not to scale up. Their charm is in the fact that they are not built to scale up and, and they can get, they can get wiped out or at least turned into something so different like, I don't think you have to be an authenticity fetishist to say that, like, certain businesses, you know, beyond a certain point, but turn into something, you know, really radically different in character from what they what made them charming to begin with. No? Yeah, this actually came up in relation to my own neighborhood this past weekend when I read something. I think it was on the Savur website. It was it was some fancy restaurant lady. I don't remember if she's a cookbook author or a restaurateur or a chef or what. But it was, she was talking about her food diary and what she ate for a whole weekend, and most of it was extremely annoying and, you know, just implying a sort of lifestyle that none of us either have the money or time to lead. But then there was a moment that she mentioned, oh, and then my husband and I went to our favorite tamale place in Park Slope, which happens to be not my neighborhood. And she said, but I can't possibly give away the secret because, you know, it's our it's our top secret place and we can't just have everybody tromping into our tamale place in Park Slope. Of course, my mind immediately went to screw you. It's my neighborhood. I want to know where the good tamales are. And so I immediately started researching bodegas in my neighborhood to see which one of them sell tamales over the counter the way she described. And even as I did that, I thought, OK, great. So now I'm just a gentrifying, annoying force like her. But at the same time, if there's some bodega in my neighborhood that's selling good tamales, don't they want my business as well? And uh, probably if I hadn't just read this Kevin Alexander piece, I wouldn't have turned it into a moral quandary and would have just sought out the tamales. But it did give me a moment's pause. 
Yeah, well, and there is, I mean, I think your point, Steve, that there are different notions of success and that success isn't necessarily being thronged with so many customers that it's very difficult to keep up uh, isn't the only one. That makes sense. And, you know, in the original piece, Kevin Alexander notes that um, another Oregon chef um, whose restaurant had been named, I think, the state's best by Willamette Week um, decided to open a much smaller ceviche place in an effort not to be at the center of such a buzz storm. And then even the ceviche place became the center of buzz and he stopped having a dinner service in order to really have the life that you can have when you run an establishment for a local crowd. Um, and I certainly understand that as an aspiration, but it just, I think it, in a world where storefront rents in almost all in many American cities are rising um, and commercial real estate is such a tough market, there are probably more restaurateurs in the boat of wishing they consistently had a steadier stream of customers than there are uh, lamenting the overages. So, I, I mean, I, it just, it just was a, it's not so much that I don't understand the impulse. It's that there was like a slew of responses that seemed to mm-hmm. right, right. fail to have any familiarity with like the potential positive basics of capitalism, which is like paying customers can support entities right. that do good things. Right. Like I, there's ways in which some web criticism has become so anti-business and so clueless about business that it uh, gives right, me right. pause anyway. Dana, before we go, there is this other issue, and I wonder if you could just dive into it a little bit. Uh, we just do not want to give it short shrift. Yeah, I mean, I, I think probably the most disturbing detail to come out of this whole burger flap is, of course, the story that was left on the outside of the original two stories, both of the the story of the burger joint and the story of why the burger joint closed, which is the domestic violence incident committed by Steve Stanich, who was the owner and manager of this restaurant and who inherited it from his parents and who was painted in a somewhat idealized and sentimentalized way by by Kevin Alexander in his description of the closing of the restaurant. You're left reading that feeling like poor Steve Stanich. He was struggling with some sort of undescribed personal problems. And as a result, he was unable to keep this family business going because of this onslaught of Instagrammers from out of town. And in fact, it seems like the Instagrammers are something of a straw man and that the problems that that restaurant is having have everything to do with the problems that this man is having because of, you know, an act of violence committed against his wife of many years, who had also in another horrible detail just been diagnosed with breast cancer. So, I mean, it really is the story of a woman's problems being shunted entirely to the side in order to construct the narrative of, you know, a man and his tragic struggles. And I think that's really something to pay attention to, again, not just in this one particular story, but in the way we do journalism at large. You know, to the original question of should you do a background check on everybody that you plan to run in a restaurant feature? I mean, given what we know about restaurant culture, that might start to be a good idea. But I don't think that has been standard journalistic practice till now. And I don't think that's crazy. Um, You know, what has been a little muddy and come out over time is kind of whether he knew about the charge when he wrote the second piece and whether he knew about the charge when he wrote the initial list. And it's become clear that he certainly knew about it when he wrote the second piece, or at least knew some more details of it than he allowed. Um, And that is the part that is super yucky, because it seems like what he's trying to acknowledge in the second piece is this mistake of having uh, decided that the kind of quaintness and the non-obviousness of Stanich's as a selection for the number one burger in the country was part of the story, part of what would make the whole thing pop. Um, and, uh, you know, so he sort of used 
aspects of this business that were convenient to create the narrative he wanted for a national digital online audience. And then he commits exactly the same sin the second time of deciding that, oh, whatever's going on with his wife, well, I'm not sure I have the, I'm not going to report that out. That sounds yucky, but whatever. It's just, you know, family stuff. Forget Which it. he actually it, says it, could happen to anyone, right? I think there's a phrase, something like he had personal problems that could occur in any family. And I mean, it seems like we should be setting a higher standard for the behavior of men in families than that just being a standard personal problem that we dismiss. Yeah. So that that is the part that is definitely malfeasance. All right. Well, the article to which we pegged most of the discussion is called The Review That Quote Unquote Killed a Restaurant by Kevin Alexander on Thrill List. I don't know if I uh, indicated that from no- November 6th. Check that out, but also all of the ancillary um, controversy and issues. And let's move on. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. Uh, <laughs> what do you have? Full moon werewolf time, Steve. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just desperate for anything new. <laughs> yeah, how much can you do with a vowel, right, over the course of a decade? <laughs> uh... <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> Uh, Okay, I'm going to do two quick ones this week, two because the first one is a Slate-related product, and I wouldn't want to seem too log-rolly, but I will make our producer beam by endorsing a podcast that he also produces that I absolutely love, Decoder Ring. We've talked about it before. It's Willa Paskin's monthly podcast about odd mysteries in pop culture that she tries to solve. So I believe the first one we talked about here on the show, it was the laugh track and the history of laugh tracks on TV. Uh, There have been a couple interesting ones since then, but the most recent one is the one that I'm going to endorse now to get people into decoder ring. It's called Sad Jennifer Aniston, and it's all about the tabloid trope of Sad Jennifer Aniston, who, as Willa observes, and as I've noticed looking at supermarket tabloid racks over the years, has essentially had the same tabloid story going on for almost two decades now, which is poor sad Jen. Why since she had children? Is she still pining for Brad Pitt? Has she forgiven Angelina Jolie? Right. We all know the love triangle that Jennifer Aniston seems to be stuck in against her will in the public mind for all these years. And uh, and so Willa Paskin gets into it and talks about the sad Jen trope as, in fact, a way of looking at what's happened in what we're calling tabloid journalism, I guess, celebrity gossip over the last 20 years and uh, and sort of how it moved from magazines to the Internet, how it moved from being extremely fact-checked to hardly at all fact-checked, and in general, just how our way of looking at Jennifer Aniston and her supposed imagined story, uh, what it says about how we look at celebrities and how we look at women. So the sad Jennifer Aniston episode of Dakota Ring is my first endorsement. And the other one, just very quickly, is the audiobook that I'm just about to finish. And I'm sad that I'm just about to finish it because I've loved listening to it for the last however many dozens of hours. It's a nonfiction book about philosophy, but it's also a very sparkly and engaging um, just a set of, of stories from the history of philosophy. It's called At the Existentialist Cafe, and the subtitle, which I love, is Freedom Being and Apricot Cocktails. It's by Sarah Bakewell, and the version of it on Audible is narrated by Antonia Beamish, who, like the author, is British and has a wonderful plummy accent in which she narrates this book. And so it's about the history of existentialism as a school of thought, but it is the absolute opposite of a heavy philosophy tome. It's really almost a way into the history through the social relationships that that history created. So it starts off talking about, you know, sort of how Kierkegaard begat Heidegger and Heidegger begat Sartre and stuff that you probably know if you've taken a modern philosophy class. But that's just the introduction. She sets up this whole kind of genealogy of what we call existentialism through the 20th century 
in the first chapter. And then she goes back and sort of character by character using Hannah Arendt and Heidegger's romance and Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir's romance and, you know, the, the fights that Sartre had with Camus over political engagement and all sorts of, you know, crisscrossing social network connections in Europe in the 20th century to explore not just philosophy, but the history of that time. And it's absolutely delightful to, um, I'm sure, to read, but also to listen to as narrated by Antonia Beamish. So at the Existentialist Cafe, freedom being in apricot cocktails. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. That's so up your alley, Steve. You would really it like really it. It really is. Yeah, yeah, no, I, got, I have to check that out. All right, Julia, what do you, what do you have? Uh, I have two endorsements today. The first is an addition to my LA syllabus, which we've discussed on this show, the set of books and films I am consuming uh, to fully saturate me in my new Los Angeles life. Um, But this was an accidental one. I was flying back to New York for Thanksgiving and had done a bunch of work and had a couple hours of the flight left and started tootling through the old uh, seatback AV display. And what to my wondering eyes should appear but Alicia Silverstone as Cher in hmm. Clueless. And I thought, <laughs> Clueless! That is an iconic Los Angeles movie that we did not include on our roster. Um, and I clicked it up while I was eating my airport meal. And um, that movie holds up. When is the last time you guys watched Clueless? Oh, probably when it came out. Stephen, you? Oh, I've seen it a couple times since, but maybe not in the last five, eight years. The thing I had forgotten about it, so obviously, you know, it's a film that lingers in our minds for Alicia Silverstone's performance, for kind of the the baby-faced Paul Rudd who never aged, for the kind of catchphrases, as if, I'm outie, etc., all of which remain and are charming, but the, the tone of this film is so distinctive. Like, it's basically just a teen romance, right? But somehow, through the sheer power of the direction and the screenplay, the incredibly elaborate elocution of all the characters, the strange alternate linguistic universe they inhabit, (laughs) um, like, it is a great, great screenplay. And um, just, like, a reminder of how screenwriting can create a whole world you've never been to that doesn't actually exist that is an incredibly fun delightful fantasy and it doesn't actually have to be like computer generated and on the planet of Voltaethon or whatever um sorry i sound like i've never sounded like such a crank in my life but oh my god clueless what a good movie definitely watch it again um my second endorsement are you guys ready can i get a drum roll it probably just sounded like thumping, but I tried to beat the table for you. <laughs> for my first ever Los Angeles Times log roll. Are you ready? Are you ready? <laughs> Drum roll for the log roll. I'm ready. Roll it out. <laughs> but I did want to flag for our listeners, and particularly to any listeners of ours who uh, read my long ago series about wayfinding and signage, a piece that Carolina Miranda wrote for the Los Angeles Times last week called Meet the Anonymous Artist Installing Bus Benches at Neglected Stops on LA's East Side. Um, this piece is like a fascinating time spent with this artist who basically noted noticed that for various complicated municipal bureaucratic reasons, there are is essentially no place to sit or shelter yourself from the sun or the rain at many, many bus stops in Los Angeles and has just taken upon it himself to design 
a great bus bench and install it in the dead of night in a bunch of places. And then the buses, bus benches are being uninstalled by an entity who has yet to be discovered. Um, but it reminded me of another great story, uh, also taking place in Los Angeles, where an artist was very frustrated by a poorly marked interchange and found the Caltrans specs for what highway signs should be like and be sized at and be made out of and manufactured for himself a sign that would better mark this interchange and went and put on a Caltrans uniform and installed it. And then it stayed there for nine years, which was something I wrote about in that sign series and which Carlina mentioned in her piece. But if you are a fan of artists whose uh, preferred metier is uh, municipal works, you should read this story. All right. So I am going to endorse a, um, a couple different things. One is that if you are able to get to New York between now and I believe sometime in January, I think pretty early in January, you may be tempted to go see the Warhol exhibit. You should absolutely do it. I hope we talk about the Warhol on the show. If we can all get a chance to go, I've gone. It is remarkable. Uh, Andy is you know, omnipresent and eternal in the culture for better and for worse. However, you should also absolutely make time to go see the Delacroix exhibit at the Met. Um, Delacroix is a, a, the great 19th century, maybe, maybe, maybe among the, certainly the first half of the 19th century greatest of French painters, French romantic, but uh, you know, a, 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 just a giant of French canvas making who fits under no easy category, painted all kinds of paintings, all kinds of different subjects in his brushstrokes and his bold, you know, painterly gestures. You see what will come next, which is eventually Impressionism and post-Impressionism, Van Gogh and Cezanne. I mean, just this powerfully expressive artistic selfhood is you know, eager to break beyond all kinds of academic formalities, but it's too early to do it. But that created in itself just a remarkable body of work. I went on a Monday and I had one of the more amazing Mondays I've ever had. That Delacroix exhibit is 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 really remarkable. I mean, he truly is one, I think, one of the greatest artists to ever put paint on canvas. Um, and it's a, it, it, there have been complaints about the exhibit being a little dark. I, I, I can't I, I, that was not my experience of it. I thought it was a beautifully hung exhibit and people should go. If you can't make it, I have something for you to read. In addition to the catalog of that exhibit, which is wonderful, the essays are beautifully written and selected. Um, the New York Times ran a great article by uh, an art critic, Jason Farago, who is now their art critic or one of their art critics, called Three Days, 150 Paintings, a Whirlwind Tintoretto Tour. And essentially... On the 500th anniversary of the painter's birth, he set out to see all of Tintoretto's major works, which are spread around 20 or 21 locations or so in Venice. And it's not just that he did that. It's that he really thought through why he was doing it and described beautifully what the experience of seeing this work is, why Tintoretto is so distinctive among Italian Renaissance artists. But it's just a, it, I mean, it really isn't, honestly, it's just a beautifully, beautifully written work of criticism. I mean, I that 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 it would be at all over, I'm sure it got a lot of love and attention, but it didn't get enough that it could be overlooked at all is a crime. It is, it is, it is a superb, superb piece of writing and I commend people to it. All right. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. We do have a Twitter feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. We absolutely have a producer extraordinaire, Benjamin Frisch, a production assistant, also extraordinaire, Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. 